0: Good morning, everybody. Um, welcome. If you're new here and I didn't get a chance to say hi to you or anything, it matters to me. It matters to us um, because, as you can see, we're a small church. And the thing that a small church has to offer is community and fellowship and and getting to really know each other and be a part of a family. So that matters to us. So if you're new here and I didn't get a chance to say hi, um, Hang out after service. We have plenty of donuts downstairs. I already bought donuts, and then Scott went and bought more donuts, so we have plenty of donuts. Hang out with us. Come downstairs. Check out the rest of the building. There's coffee donuts downstairs. Again, even if you don't do that, we just want to get to know you, so so hang out. Um, We are in the Gospel of Mark, and I love the Gospel of Mark, and I've said this before, but if you're new here, you know, each Gospel... There's four Gospels, and each one of those Gospels has a particular um, direction, a particular emphasis, so to speak. So, for instance, um, the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is very much focused on the Messiahship of Jesus, the, the um, royal lineage, the descendants from David, Very, very focused on that. The Gospel of Mark, though, the Gospel of Mark is very much about the servanthood. It's why we call it the Servant Messiah. It's all about what Jesus came for. He came to serve, not to be served. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And I was looking this morning, kind of thinking about, like most pastors do, thinking about sermon illustrations, and usually I get those in advance a couple days before, but this morning, literally as I'm just sitting here, and I'm kind of, like Pastor Gabe said, I'm just sort of lamenting the fact that our truck got stolen last night, and what are we going to do? And, and in the scheme of things, a stolen truck is, is really, it's not that big of a deal. It matters, but it's not that big of a deal. But here's what the Lord impressed on me. We're in Mark chapter 14. We're just starting chapter 14. And one of the key things that happens in chapter 14 that we get to see is Judas betrays Jesus. Okay, now we we all, no matter where you are in your walk with Christ, um, brand new or a long time, everybody knows the story of Judas betraying Christ. I should say almost everybody knows. And here's what the Lord asked me. Jesus welcomed Judas into that Last Supper. Jesus Jesus welcomed Judas to be one of his disciples and travel with him and be a part of of his group. And the Lord asked me the question, if you knew that the person that stole the truck was either already here or maybe they walked through the door and you knew it was them, could you welcome him? Yike, that's hard. Because at first I go, oh, of course I would, of course I would. Sinners are welcome. Who needs church more than a sinner? But then I started thinking, really, could I? In my flesh, could I say, you're welcome. You're welcome to come and partake of what we do. You're come and, and you're welcome to have donuts. You're welcome to hang out with us. You're welcome to be a part of this body. And I forgive you. That's something that's working in my heart right now, to be honest with you. Could I do that? Because we're all faced situations just like that all the time and it comes down to forgiveness and Christ forgives us every single day Christ forgives us of the things that we've done the things that we are yet to do and he forgives us without without saying you need to get your stuff together and then I'll forgive you he forgives us first and then he asks us to turn away from those ways so I'm just being honest. As I preach this message, that's something that I'm working over in my heart right now. Could I do that? I'd like to think I could. I'd like to teach you all that you should do that. It starts in my heart. So that's something I'm working on right now. So let's get into the message. Chapter 13, you know, we just came out of chapter 13. Chapter 13, if you were here for that, um, it was some meaty teaching. There's a lot that goes on. In chapter thirteen, there is all kinds of pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, uh, near-term, long-term prophecy and fulfillment, short-term fulfillment, long-term fulfillment, all kinds of things that are debatable, but but really, really good, meaty teaching. And if you've missed any of that, I'd invite you to go back and check out our message archives. You can do it right through our website; is real easy, or or through our YouTube page. But um. There was a lot there, but basically when it was over, really what it came down to, the whole message from that was stay alert and don't be deceived because judgment is coming. There will be a judgment and Jesus is returning soon. Now, whether you think soon is a week from Tuesday or today, or if it's a thousand years from now, soon, soon means soon. And it's very, um, it's very clearly said that we're not going to know when. We aren't going to know when that moment is. Now, we can. those of us who enjoy eschatology and things can really spend some time trying to figure out when it is and when it happens, and there are people who make a living at doing that. Bottom line, Jesus says you're not going to know, so just be ready. So that's what it comes down to. Now, we know that the parallel accounts, each gospel, for the most part, has a different account of the same story. It's like, I said this in Wednesday night service, like, if we were all to walk outside and witness a car accident, each one of us then, if we were pulled aside by ourselves and asked to describe that car accident, we'd all probably describe it a different way. Some of us would focus right in, oh, they were texting. I could, see they, I could see they were texting, they were doing it. Others would say, it's such a shame because it was a classic Chevelle that got crashed, and that's what we'd be focused on. You know, and we would all have our little different, same incident, same thing that happened, but there's a different story to tell from different aspects. So in this case... When Matthew's gospel finished up the section that we taught in chapter 13, the very last thing he said, Matthew 25, 46, <clears throat> he's talking about the sheep and the goats, and the illustration is the righteous versus the unrighteous. And he says this: These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And then we switch over to Mark, and the last thing Mark said, Mark 13:37. Jesus says this, what I say to you, I say to all, stay alert. Stay alert because there will be a judgment and you want to be ready for it. Don't be deceived. Now, where we are now, all of the Gospels kind of converge back from the different things they've been talking about. They go back into the account of Jesus' betrayal. So if you want to look at parallel accounts, Matthew 26, Luke 22, John 13, and then of course we're in Mark 14. And Matthew, in his account, I know it's strange, we're talking about the gospel of Mark, and I'm going to open up in Matthew. But Matthew 26, 1 to 2, the very first part, Matthew says this, (coughs) excuse me, when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Okay, so right off the bat, we know at the beginning of this exchange that's about to happen, Jesus has already said this to them. So they should know, okay, Jesus just said that in two days, he's going to be handed over for crucifixion. Now, in in classic disciple fashion, they hear it, and it just goes right over their heads, and they don't really log it in. But that's how it starts. And remember, Matthew's gospel is really just focused on the messiahship of Jesus and the fulfillment of those messianic prophecies. That's kind of why it opens up like that. But Mark is focused on how Jesus came to serve. So let's get into this. Mark 14, we're going to be in 1 to 21. Mark 14, 1. Now the Passover and festival of unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him covertly and kill him. Okay, Now, a lot of us have either confused or never really even thought about the difference between Passover and unleavened bread. Okay, The way this is worded, it says, now the Passover and festival of unleavened bread were two days away. It makes it seem like it's two separate things, but a lot of times it's seen as one, which is accurate. It's, it's one celebration kind of divided into two specific parts, and there's reasons for it. So I'm going to kind of explain that to you just briefly so it makes sense. For those of you who are new here, anytime there's something in Scripture that, like, there's confusion over or just doesn't really make sense, I love, I feel like my job is to make it clear, make it make sense. Get rid of those stumbling blocks, those things that just don't make sense, so that we can focus on what the true message is. Passover... And unleavened bread are actually two separate uh, celebrations of two separate events Passover and a lot of us know this, but if you don't Passover celebrates or commemorates the passing over of what some scripture calls the destroyer or the angel of death, passing over the Hebrews as they were in um, as they were in slaved, really, in Egypt. And that comes from Exodus, Exodus 12, 12, 23. Let me just read the little section for you. And this is where Passover comes from. For I will, this is the Lord speaking, for I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and fatally strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the human firstborn to animals. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will come upon you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Again, this is after they take the blood of the lamb and they literally paint it on the doorposts of their of their homes so that the destroyer will pass over them. So when when Passover is being celebrated, that's that's the event, that passing over. Of, of their homes from the destroyer, from the angel of death. Now, unleavened bread g- goes right into that and dovetails with that. So that's why there's some confusion. Unleavened bread is actually a week-long celebration that celebrates the actual deliverance from slavery in Egypt, when they actually left Egypt and then began what we know as that 40-year wandering the desert, right? So That's what that celebrates. And that's from Exodus 12, 14, 15. So it's just a continuation of the thought. And the Lord says, Now this day shall be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove dough with yeast from your houses. And whoever eats anything with yeast from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Now, that's where that Feast of Unleavened Bread comes from. That last sentence, though, shall be cut off from Israel. Does that sound harsh? For you you leave some yeast in your house, or you eat bread with yeast in it, and you're just going to be cut off from the Lord? We have to think about those kind of things in context. What that means, the reason that they were told, not and you have to go back and read Exodus, but they were told, don't bring bread that has risen. Don't bring bread that has yeast in it when we begin our fleeing from Egypt and our 40-year exodus. Why is that? Very practical reasons. Number one, once it raises with leaven, once it, once it raises, it spoils very quickly. It's going to go bad in no time. If you take that out into the desert, you're not going to have food for very long. And then secondly, it doubles, triples in size, as we know, right? And it becomes bulkier, heavier, heavier. What he's really saying right here, number one, he's telling you, don't do it. That should be enough. But if there's a practical reason, you try and carry all this, you're going to be slow. And when we're fleeing Egypt, you're going to be the last. You're going to be left behind. Your food's going to go bad. You're going to be hungry. There's a very practical reason for most of the commandments that we see. Some are just to honor the Lord because the Lord says, do it that way. But some are very, very practical or have a practical aspect. That's what that is. He's not saying, I'm purposely going to cut you off just because you didn't listen to me. That may be part of it. But he's saying, look, if you try and carry all that, you're going to be left behind. So that's where that comes from. Now, in our case, in our story where he's talking about Passover being two days away, Passover begins on sunset, at sunset. The, The Hebrew days begin at sunset. Okay? And they go overnight. So when, it talks, when a Hebrew talks about midday, they're actually really talking about midnight or, or, or early, early morning. Passover begins at sunset on Thursday, in this case, and it gets celebrated on Friday. So that's kind of the timeline of what we're looking at here. Mark 14, 2. For they were saying, now again, we're, we're going back. This is the chief priests and the scribes who are seeking how to arrest and covertly kill Jesus. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there will be a riot of the people. Think about what's going on here. This is Passover. This is the biggest yearly celebration in Jerusalem that, uh, that that happens. And there are, most estimates say, somewhere around 2 million people are in Jerusalem. Now, if you've ever been there, or if you haven't, look it up. It's not that big of a place. For two million people to be in Jerusalem at this time, it's chaos. It's packed. It's a madhouse. And many of those people who had come traveled in. They call them pilgrims. They came in from all over the place, all the countries, and a lot of them possibly from Galilee and Perea and these places that Jesus and the disciples had traveled through witnessing Jesus do these miracles. They considered him a prophet. They considered him a great man. Whether they considered him Messiah yet or not, they all knew, here's a prophet. Here's a miracle worker. Here is here's somebody to note. And they're saying, if we just snatch him in front of all these people, there's bound to be a riot. That's why it says that. Now, I want to give you a warning for a detour. A lot of times in scripture, it just seems like it just takes a fork for no reason and tells a story It doesn't seem to make sense. This is one of those stories, but I'm going to show you how it does make sense. Mark 14, 3. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. Okay, wait. If you've been following us along, while he was in Bethany, wait a minute. Bethany is a town near Bethsaida that's on the way into Jerusalem. He passed Bethany days ago as he was coming into Jerusalem. We're in Jerusalem now. Why are we now telling a story about what happened last week? Stay with me. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, he was reclining at the table, and a woman came with an alabaster vial, of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the vial and poured the perfume over his head. A couple things I want you to know about that that really are significant. First of all, here's a picture of probably somewhat what these alabaster vials look like. Now, these, these date to roughly that. They're, I'm sure they're not the vials, but they date to roughly that time. And the, the expensive perfume would have been put in there. And whereas Scripture says that they were broken, like she broke it open, some, some translations say a box, some say a vial, some say a jar, some say a vase. It all probably would have been something like this, especially knowing that it got taken with her. It was, it was on the road with her when she broke it open, and I'll tell you more about how we know that in a second. But to break it open, when you traveled with something like this, they would put a cork in it or a stopper of some kind, and they would seal it with either wax or tree sap so that it didn't pop out and leak while you're on the trail. So just that little thing where it says she had to break it open, that tells us it wasn't purchased right there for use right there, It was purchased some time ago, and it was made, purposely sealed up, so that it could be portable and go with her. Now, right now, all we know was a woman. We'll talk more about that here. The event that we're talking about right there, some people debate this, and they debate it because they think maybe there had to be two separate incidences, both of which resulted in somebody breaking a vial of nard and and anointing Jesus with it. And the reason that they come back in a lot of cases is because it says that they were in the home of Simon the leper. And tradition would tell you that a leper can't be in the presence of people. A leper would never be like, hey, I'm a leper, come on into my house and, and relax. They were segregated from society, they were outcasts, And so people see that and go, well, there's no way that they're going to be hanging out at the home of a leper while all this stuff goes on. But common sense here, sometimes we have to inject this. If you have a lot of people named Simon, Simon was super common name at that time. How would you identify them to keep them Simon the the Tanner, Simon the Leper, doesn't mean he was a leper at that time. What I believe, and we don't know this for sure, but you can connect the dots through Scripture, I think that he was a leper who was healed by Jesus, showing his gratitude like saying, come into my home. I'm healed now. And we don't know that again from Scripture, but that, that makes sense to me. Also present at this home were Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Now, which, which Mary? Anybody know which Mary? There's lots of Marys. Which Mary is this? Does anybody know? It's probably Mary Magdalene. Probably Mary Magdalene. Um, and we don't know, again, we don't know that 100% for sure, because it just says Mary, but if you connect the dots through Scripture, it points to this being Mary Magdalene. Only John's Gospel says the name. And again, if we think it's one event rather than two separate events, it points to Mary Magdalene. Now, this also makes sense when it comes to the oil. And I'm going to talk about that here in just a second. Mark 14, 4 and 5. Back to the story. But there were some indignantly remarking to one another. Again, this this was in response to her breaking the vial and pouring This nard oil over Jesus' head. But there were some indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume could have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. Now, 300 denarii. Anybody know? Just throw out a number. What's the average wage in, let's say, the U.S. today? Average yearly wage. Nobody's very certain. It's okay. It's, it's around, depending on who, on what statistics you use, it's, it's somewhere between, say, forty and forty and $50,000 or so. Let's just go with that number. Let's just say it's $40,000. 300 denarii was about a year's wage in those days. That'd be like somebody taking a jar of oil that cost $40,000 today, breaking it and pouring it over someone's head to anoint them. That's why they're scolding her. Like, what are you doing with that? This raises another question for me, and some of you may be thinking about it. Let's talk about it. First of all, nard is actually, the full name is spike nard. Spike nard is taken from a grass that only grows in India, and they take that grass, and they squeeze it, and basically they squeeze an extract out of it. That extract comes out Um, really thick and kind of like paste, and then they process it to make like an oil, a perfume out of it. Incredibly expensive, incredibly rare. Now here's a question that I have. How did Mary Magdalene even happen to have that with her? Does that seem odd to anybody? Because we know throughout all the stories, Jesus tells the disciples to go out and do ministry, and he says, Don't take anything with you. Rely on the goodness of those people. So they weren't like, I'm just going to pack everything I can. And yet, this woman, Mary Magdalene, we think she is, um, had a $40,000 vial of oil with her that she had been traveling with. Where do you think she came up with that? How would she come across that? Anybody remember what Mary Magdalene's profession was? She was a prostitute which means she was probably the most well-paid of all of the disciples that were following Jesus around, but maybe she had a benefactor, somebody who wanted to make sure that his prostitute smelled nice. Somehow or another, she had it. The point here is what she had through her, through her gains, through her job, whether it was a job of, of ill repute, one that wasn't the highest standard, she had been blessed with or somehow or another obtained something that was incredibly precious. And when she breaks it and pours it over Jesus' head to anoint him, his response is actually this, leave her alone. He doesn't say, get that away from me. You, uh, you, you uh, got that by ill gains. That's tainted. Leave it. Up, leave it. He doesn't say any of that. He didn't say any of that. And why this story is inserted out of order is something that we need to think about. Think about this. John 12, this is John's gospel. 4 through 6 says, but and this is someone else's account. Again, John's account in retrospect of this event because John didn't write his gospel until later. John 12, 4 through 6. But Judas Iscario, one of his disciples... The one who intended to betray him said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the proceeds given to poor people? Now, verse six, listen to this. Now he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As he kept the money box, he used to steal from what was put into it. That's the kind of information that you only add after the fact. Looking back, going, I know what Judas did I know all the accusations. I know what he did now. So now that I'm writing my gospel, I'm going to make sure you all know and I'm going to paint him for who he is. But at this time, they didn't know. Judas wasn't a bad guy. He was one of them. John points back to this. But it's like the gospel writers, especially John, is saying, yeah, we we could have seen that Judas was a bad seed all the way back then. The signs were there. But Jesus never acknowledges that. Mark 14, 6. Now back to Mark. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a good deed for me. He's showing showing love and devotion for the king of kings doesn't have to be practical. It shouldn't be practical. It should be extravagant. That kind of extravagant love. In this case, it's an extravagant gift that she gave to the king. But we shouldn't hold back and just say, well, it's, it's not practical to spend that kind of time with the Lord. It's not practical to do this. Look, if we are looking for practical gifts, okay, who among you has uh, uh, someone that they care about, maybe someone they love, and you've given a gift to them? Roses. Anybody know how much a dozen roses cost these days? It's not super practical. How about a diamond ring? The classic, you get married, you you give somebody a diamond ring. Outrageously priced, right? No matter how big they are. Super practical gift? Only if you're going to scribe some glass, I guess. Maybe it's practical. A gift card to Lowe's or Home Depot would be much more practical. But is that a way to show extravagant love? That's what Mary is doing here. She is showing extravagant, outrageous love to the King of Kings. Mark fourteen seven is Jesus continuing what he says. For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you do not always have me. Many people take that scripture, me included, I've used this before, to justify driving past the homeless person on the street corner there will always be the poor among us. I'll let some, he'll be there tomorrow. Somebody else's issue. Just to be clear, Jesus is not saying it's okay or that we should ignore the poor. Matthew 25, 40, Jesus says, And the king will answer to them and say, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did it for me. And going all the way back to Deuteronomy, if you think this is only a New Testament thing, Deuteronomy 15, 11, For the poor will not cease to exist in the land, therefore I am commanding you, saying, You shall fully open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. What this means, though, not to ignore the poor, not that the poor aren't important, but it means that works should never take the place of communion with Jesus. I read a commentary that said if that were the case, there would be all kinds of really well fed and well taken care of homeless people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus. Our priorities need to be in order. That's what's being said here. Mark 14, 8 9. Back to to Mary. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is preached in the entire world, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. It's ironic that three of the four gospels don't mention her name. It's just the woman, but Jesus is saying wherever the gospel is preached, she'll be told. Now, think about it. This is when, when she says, when Jesus says, She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. This is not the first time that they've heard of Jesus' impending death. Remember, I opened up with Matthew. Matthew talked about that. Mark 14.10, Then Judas... Anybody know how to pronounce Iscariot? Iscario? It's actually, in Greek, it's, it's Iscariotis. Iscariotis is how it's pronounced. Then Judas Iscariotis who was one of the twelve, went off with the chief priests in order to betray him to them. That word, Iscariotus, actually means man of Kerioth, which is actually a small town. That's how we know it's this particular Judas. Luke adds a very important detail that we're going to talk about next week when we get into this. This is Luke's, again, parallel account. Luke twenty-two, three 3 and 4. And Satan entered Judas. The one called Ascariotis, who belonged to the number of the twelve. And he left and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he was to betray him to them. Think about Satan entered into Judas. It's going to be very important in next week's message. So hang on to that. Remember the religious powers. When we go back to the beginning, they were at a loss. Like, how do we, how do we arrest and kill Jesus? With all these people around, they're, they're so ready to embrace anybody who comes to him with a plan, and Judas gives them the perfect out. Mark 14, 11, they were delighted when they heard this, when Judas came to them and promised to give him money, and he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. They, they were like, this is perfect. He's given us the perfect out. Even if he's caught, he's one of Jesus' own guys can't be traced back to us they gotta be thrilled Matthew's gospel tells us anybody remember what the cost to betray what they gave Judas what they promised him to betray Jesus anybody remember that what's significant about 30 pieces of silver anybody know cost of what almost almost here's the thing Exodus and Zechariah both tell us that the cost of a slave, the going price for a slave, is 30 pieces of silver. Now, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, they could have come up with a little more than that. This is almost an intentional slam at Jesus. If they were saying, we want you to go assassinate a king, we want you to go assassinate a head of state or somebody who's very important, the cost would be a lot more than that. But they're saying, here's all we think this Jesus guy is worth it's the cost of a slave. Didn't Jesus say he was going to give his life as a ransom for us to free us from slavery? That amount was purposely chosen. So now, it's Thursday. Okay, fast forward to Thursday. It's time for Passover. How am I doing on time? Oh, yeah, I got another two hours at least. You guys good? You guys good? It's Thursday now, and it's time to get ready for Passover. Mark 14, 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Mark 14, 13. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. Luke's gospel says it was Peter and John. So that's how we know those two were Peter and John. Let me I, I mean, this is, this is spy tradecraft, right? Go into the town. Look for the man carrying the water jar. Think about it from a practical standpoint. How many people did I just say are in Jerusalem for the Passover? Two million. Okay? It's chaos. How are you going to walk in and just see the guy that's carrying the water jar? What are the chances of that happening, it seems pretty, pretty remote until you think about this. Men didn't carry water jars. Men didn't go gather water in that culture. That was women's work. So when you saw a man carrying a water jar, that was unusual. That's how they had a, a reasonable expectation. You walk in, you see a man carrying a water jar, it's going to be him. Because that was a task that that women were assigned to in that culture. So things just make sense. The more you study the word of God, the more it makes sense. The more real it is. The more authentic it is. Mark 14, 14 and 15. Again, following the man carrying a pitcher of water. And whenever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upstairs room, furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. Now, if we put the pieces together through other scripture, this is probably young Mark, the writer of this gospel. It's probably his home. More accurately, it's his mother's home. And this is where they go. This is also the scene of what we know as... The Last Supper. Here's a painting. If you haven't seen this painting, here's a image of the Last Supper. So you got most of us have seen this at one point or another. I've heard it. Did you know that that's 15 feet by 30 feet wide? This is just trivia. This is not theology. It's 15 feet tall, 30 feet wide. This thing is enormous, and it was painted by da Vinci. And normally at that time they would do things like this in frescoes, which is you, you paint basically on plaster. This was an oil painting because he wanted to be able to update it as he got more information on what the individual disciples looked like. And by doing it with an oil base, he could make changes along the way. Again, just, just trivia for those of you who are interested in that. You can leave that up there for a couple minutes just for, uh, for people to look at The Passover meal now was very orderly. It all, it's, it's all very strictly ordained. This is how the Passover meal works. So even though all over the place people were celebrating their own Passover meals, it was all done in the same manner. And here's the order of it. Number one, you mix a, you drink a cup of wine mixed with water. So basically kind of watered down wine. That would be step one. Step two is a ceremonial washing of hands. We've taught on this before, but it's very, very orderly. You wash one hand first, and then you wash the other hand first. There's a, there's a process to it. And it's all very ceremonial. Then, the eating of the bitter herbs. There would be a plate of bitter herbs, and they would share that. They didn't taste good, and they weren't there to taste good. It was, a, it was symbolic of their exodus from Egypt. Then, they drink a second cup of wine while the host or whoever's the head of the banquet tells the Passover story, most likely reading right straight from Exodus. Then they sing what's called the halal, and they sing that together. It's from Psalms 113 to 118, and they basically just sing that together. Then, and only then, is the Passover lamb brought out, and they bring out unleavened bread with us, and the feast really begins. And then the last part of it is a third cup of wine is shared together. So it's all very, very orderly. But right in the middle of this very orderly, very solemn ceremony, Jesus drops this bombshell on him, Mark 14, 18. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Right in the middle of this feast, That they're having. Mark 14, 19. And they began to be grieved and say to him one by one, Surely not I. Anything strike anybody weird about that statement? Surely not I. If I looked at one of you and I said, You are going to betray me today, you'd go, No, I'm not. Human nature, right? No, I'm not. There's the question, it's not a statement. And it says, they all said this. They began to say to him one by one. Each one of them said, surely not I. Anybody have that pulled up in their their Bible? What's the punctuation at the end of surely not I? It's a question mark. It's not an exclamation point. It's a question. Why would they be questioning that if they knew what was in their heart? I think they're questioning it because they knew what was in their heart. And they said surely it's not going to be me they had been with jesus they had seen demon possession they had known the way that demons could possess and control people they'd seen that and so they may have been afraid like it's not i'm not the target right it's demon's going to come into me and i'm going to betray you it's a question it's not one of certainty they're very well aware of their capacity for sin and for demons to control and or lie to them. Thus the question. But he says to them, Mark 14, 20, but he said to them, it's one of the 12, the one who dips bread with me in the bowl. He's saying it very clearly. It's it's one of you right here. Some theologians think what they would do is put dipping bowls out along the table. Use that big, long table. There'd be several dipping bowls. And some say it was literally the one who was sharing the dipping bowl with Jesus. So it means either the guy to my right or to my left. May or may not, but in that painting, Judas is right there next to him. Matthew 26, 25 says, And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You've said it yourself. Mark 14, 21. Jesus concludes it like this, For the Son of Man is going away, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Jesus knew what was happening here. Jesus isn't an unwitting bystander. He's not surprised that this is going to happen. It's not the first time he's heard it was going to happen like this. Psalm 41, Zechariah 13, Isaiah, even going back to Genesis, all talk about how this is going to happen. It's foretold Jesus knew it. And Jesus himself said this, this is from John's gospel again, John 10, 17, 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it back lay down my life so that I may take it back no one has taken it away from me but I lay it down on my own I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it back this commandment I received from my father nobody's taking anything from Jesus he's giving it and he knows that Judas is going to betray him and he still invites him to the table could you do that Jesus knew how this was going to play out and still offered Judas a seat at the table. Why is that? Why do you think it had to play out like that? I mean, there are plenty of other candidates who would be more than willing to betray Jesus for money. Pharisees, scribes, various various people. It would have been very easy to come up with somebody else who would betray Jesus. Why Judas? I think it's the same reason why there wasn't a fence around the fig, around the apple tree in the Garden of Eden. You ever ask this? If they weren't supposed to eat, if Adam and Eve weren't supposed to eat off of this apple tree, why didn't God just put a fence around it? Or put it up on a high mountain so they couldn't reach it? Or better yet, not have it be there where they could get to it at all. You ever think about that? The answer is all about choice. It's about free will that we have as human beings to come to him or to not come to him. To live by his commands or to not live by his commands. To live as righteous a life as we can or to not. It's our choice. We're never forced into any of this. And Judas had a choice right up until the very end. He had a choice. Satan was tempting him. We see in Scripture, Satan entered him, was tempting him, was lying to him, was telling him, look, look out for number one. Get yours. Get your profit. Get what money you can. Look out for number one. That saying, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Jesus had promised Judas life in heaven with him, eternal life, living water, all those things that Judas had heard Jesus teach about. Judas knew that, but that was, that was later. That was some theoretical later date. Right now, I could use 30 pieces of silver. That phrase, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. That's an, that's an old English proverb. We've all heard some version of that, right? Do you know it came from Ecclesiastes? Much, much older. King Solomon said this a thousand years before Jesus. Ecclesiastes 9.4, For whoever is joined to all the living, there is hope for better a live dog than a dead lion. That's where it comes from. In context, actually, he's saying, trust in God more than you trust in your works. That's where it comes from. So that's not necessarily part of our theology. More Bible trivia. Kayla, that's for you. Here's the thing, though. What it really all boils down to, are you able to... Number one, are you able to love those who either have betrayed you or you're pretty sure they will? Can you love them? If you have that person who has betrayed you before, what do we say in our flesh? Never again. I'll forgive you, but I'm not ever going to let you do that again. Well, that's not forgiveness. I'll forgive, but I won't forget. Mm, That's borderline forgiveness could you, knowing full well that someone was going to steal from you, lie to you, cheat you, hurt you in some way, either they were going to or they already have, could you welcome them back in as Jesus welcomed Judas in? Could you do that? And then the second part is, would you be able to, despite the temptations of comfort and wealth and immediate gratification, can you set aside all pursuit of that kind of gain for eternal life? For those treasures that don't go away, that can't be stolen, those treasures that are without price. Can you set aside immediate gratification in favor of a reward that you don't know for sure when it's coming? I want to leave you with this. It's the last scripture and then we'll go into communion. Isaiah 55 It's 1 through 9, and I'm just going to read it to you. "'You there, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. "'And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. "'Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. "'Why do you spend money for what is not bread "'and your wages for what does not satisfy? "'Listen carefully to me and eat what is good "'and delight yourself in abundance.'" Incline your ear and come to me. Listen, that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Verse 5, Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which does not know you will run to you, because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked abandon his way and the unrighteous person his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are my ways nor are your ways my ways declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that, that our ways are not your ways. And Lord, I repent of being able to look at your ways and somehow think I have the right to know how things make sense or no answers to questions that I don't have. Father, all I need to know is that you love me. All I need to know is that what the enemy intended for evil, you will use for good if I trust in you. So, Father, help me to trust in you. Help me to set aside my need to know and trust in you. Help me to set aside those things that I think are too extravagant to show love for you. Help me to set aside my want to to keep enough for myself first before I pour out my love to you. Help me to set aside that short-term gain and accept what you offer. Everlasting life, forgiveness, reconciliation to the Father, freedom. Father, that's what I want. Help me to pursue that with all my heart. I love you, Lord, and I praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to take communion together right now. We have two communion stations. We have one over here and one over here where we'll be serving uh, wine. And we have bread, and then we also have gluten-free crackers if you want that. The way we do it here is you just go and you dip it into the wine and take it, just form lines down the middle here. Um, We'll have another station over against the window there, and that's self-serve. So that has actual juice over there if you'd rather do communion with juice. But either way, we do communion every time we gather together because Christ said we should. And we're remembering. He says, do this in remembrance of me, but it's more than just remembering what he did. It's saying yes to what he did. It's accepting what he did. It's saying, I've been taught what you did. I've heard what you did. And I will take that. Yes, I will say yes to that. And every single time we partake in the body and the blood of Jesus. We should say yes to the promises of Jesus because that's what the blood is. It's the blood of the new covenant. It's promises from Jesus to us. Everlasting life, sins washed clean, communion with the Father and the broken body. The broken body is everything that we deserve that he took upon himself. So if you think none of us have anything to repent of, anything that we deserve punishment for, Think about it, because we have all sinned and fall short, but through communion with Christ, we are reconciled. We are washed clean, and that's what we celebrate when we take communion together. Amen? Amen. Thank you, guys.